This is Lex Kibernetica, the cyber law podcast by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Lex Kibernetica. When people in my privacy lectures ask, but what do I need privacy for? I ask them for their email credentials. They refuse, and that usually answers their question. But protecting our privacy is much more complicated than using a password. It is summer 2018, and this is Lex Kibernetica, the cyber law podcast of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. On this episode, we will discuss different aspects of the digital privacy uphill battle with our esteemed guests. Katrina Liggett, Associate Professor of Computer Science at the Hebrew University. Hi, my name is Limor Shmerling-Magazanik, and I'm Director of Strategic Alliances at the Israeli Privacy Protection Authority. Hello, I'm Yoram Lichtenstein. I'm an attorney, private attorney in Israel, practicing in internet and privacy laws. Katrina, you deal with the theory of uh, digital data privacy. Sometimes our privacy is breached despite good intentions. Let me tell you a story. On August 9th, 2006, the technology section of the New York Times contained a news item titled, A Face is Exposed for AOL Searcher number 441-7749. In it, reporters Michael Barbaro and Tom Zeller tell a story about big data and privacy. To quote, Buried in a list of 20 million web search queries collected by AOL and recently released on the internet is user number 441-7749. The number was assigned by the company to protect the searcher's anonymity, but it was not much of a shield. Number 441-7749 conducted hundreds of searches over a three-month period on topics ranging from numb fingers to 60 single men to dog that urinates on everything. And search by search, click by click, the identity of AOL user number 441-7749 became easier to discern. Uh, so what happened is AOL released data about uh, three months of searches of all their users or a large uh, batch of their users, and they anonymized the information uh, very um, basically. They substituted the names with numbers, ID numbers. But what this story tells us is that this was not helpful. Yes, exactly. This was not enough. And it didn't take much investigating to follow that data trail, back to this New York Times article, to Thelma Arnold, a 62-year-old widow who lives in Lilburn, Georgia. And Ms. Arnold, who agreed to discuss her searches with that reporter, said she was shocked to hear that AOL had saved and published three months' worth of them. And this article quoted her saying, We all have a right to privacy. Nobody should have found this all out. Now, you recall this was back in 2006. And since then, things have only gotten worse. So what they actually did was analyze the information and find clues within it and de-anonymize it, uh, reverse engineer it to see who the person is. And uh, obviously, if you can do it with one person, you can do it with a lot more. Yes, and, and you realize this was back in 2006. Since then, things have only gotten worse. Because there are not only searches, but social media and huge uh, email uh, inboxes and um, storage services and cloud services. So what is privacy in the digital age? So privacy is about control of your information, who has it, what they can do with it, and whether they can share something about you that might later have consequences. In the AOL example, the researchers who released the data had good intentions, and they thought they'd anonymize the data, but it's easy to get privacy wrong. Much more satisfying is if you only release information that has gone through a process that comes with formal guarantees, where those guarantees will continue to hold no matter how strong or smart or patient your attacker is, and no matter what outside information that attacker holds. So a guarantee is not in the sense of that 
I guarantee you your privacy and I will pay you uh, um, uh, money if, if it's uh, uh, breached, but guarantees in the technical uh, aspect. Exactly. So we write these f mathematical proofs that actually can show that the, the information that one releases using such technologies actually has a guarantee of privacy now and forever. And the basic idea is that whatever information we release should be about the same as we would have released had you not been in our data set. So no matter what an attacker does with the information that we put out there, she doesn't get much more information from your presence in the data set. If the AOL researchers had had access to this technology, they probably would have done something very different with the data, not just deleting obvious identifiers, but probably just releasing only rougher, more aggregated statistics about users. Uh, when you say you give mathematical proof uh, that this cannot be broken, uh, deciphered, uh, breached in the future, uh, aren't you relying on current math and current computing uh, abilities that might um, evolve or change in the future, like quantum computing, for example? So actually, this is part of what's really appealing about the types of technologies that I work with, is that they don't rely on any particular assumptions that attackers will only have access to current technologies or current ideas. These are guarantees that really will hold no matter what, and there's a mathematical proof to back them up. And now, uh, let's talk to the regulator, Limo. What is privacy by design? Privacy by design is thinking about privacy from the very, very start. Even when you uh, think about the concept of your IT activity or project, and uh, when you do the design, the architecture, the logics, and uh, even the uh, processing of data, the usage, the purposes, everything has to be thought from the start, bearing privacy in mind and introducing privacy controls in order to have the entire project, the entire system uh, better secure and better uh, uh, protected from privacy infringements. We've seen um, um, a very good example of this recently uh, with the Cambridge Analytica Facebook uh, story, scandal, whatever you want to call it. Um, the, the newspapers that exposed the story, The Guardian and The New York Times, said that there was a data breach, and Facebook said, no, this was not a breach. People were using uh, our system. Uh, they betrayed our trust, but they were using the system as it was uh, built to work. Right. Well, uh, that's, of course, uh, allegedly, as we've heard in the media, and uh, until investigations uh, tell us the facts for sure. Also an and investigation in Israel. And also an investigation that we've started in the Israeli Privacy Protection Authority just uh, a few days ago. Uh, we've, uh, let, let's talk about the idea of, of privacy by design in this context. And the fact that... Uh, an application was able to collect information, to collect personal data about Facebook users, not only from the ones who actually installed the application, but from all of their friends, without their friends in the social network being aware and giving their, their consent, uh, I think could have been avoided with uh, privacy by design. Because if a, a privacy risk assessment had been conducted and, and, and the recommendations would have been to not allow this to happen and not trust the application to be uh, responsible, but for, for the social network to design itself in a way that this would be technologically impossible, then I think that this could have been avoided. Yeah, because what they did there was they let companies move from 
consenting users to non-consenting users. And the weaker, um, the weakest link in this uh, story is the users themselves who sometimes, um, who sometimes uh, click OK and whose consent is not always uh, uh, informed. And, and they just click OK because they want to try uh, some, some interesting uh, application. And if we know that the users, that the weakest link is always between the screen and the, and the office chair, we have to build it in to prevent people from making uh, stupid mistakes. Right. I think that it's important for both uh, data controllers and regulators to, um, to, to create the, the rules of the game. And it's not enough to trust the consent mechanism and to put all the burden on the users since they have uh, limited capacity to, to read uh, user agreements and to be able to process all that uh, in legal information. I think that we have many examples of uh, apps uh, offering people uh, some sort of uh, game or gimmick sometimes, or sometimes something that is quite useful to them, but it's impossible to expect them to, to understand and to fully uh, comprehend what's going to be done with the data. I would add, though, and, and, and stress that in this uh, incident, as far as the, the facts are uh, published are correct, the purpose of the usage uh, by Cambridge Analytica was uh, quite far-reaching from the original consent, since people have... Uh, um, being, perhaps understand that Facebook uses their personal data for advertising, for ta targeted advertising. But targeted uh, campaign manipulation, political manipulation is quite another thing. Uh, would you agree that uh, what campaigners do is always manipulation and this was just done in a bigger scale and better because of technology? Uh, I would say that uh, we have rules in place uh, in, in uh, political campaigns and other places in the, in the advertising uh, industry requiring transparency to people. So you know that this is an ad that was uh, sponsored by a political party or you know that this is advertising material and, and so you do not experience such manipulations. I think the same has to apply in the digital sphere. It's not something that should, should have been lost on the way. And what is Israel doing in the sense of updating its uh, laws and regulations in this matter? So uh, we already have uh, quite an extensive uh, framework of uh, privacy protection in Israel. We, we are uh, an adequacy country. We have an acknowledgement by the EU that we have an adequate level of privacy protection. This was granted in 2011. It was based on both our legal system and the laws that we have in place. And the fact that there is an Israeli Privacy Protection Authority, which I represent, and we have enforcement powers, we're very independent professionally, and we've been active for about 10 years. We do have some catching up to do with the GDPR. We have uh, various uh, new rights introduced in the GDPR, and the Ministry of Justice is currently examining the gap analysis between our current Israeli laws and the new uh, rights of the GDPR. And we are uh, considering uh, legislation changes in order to keep up our adequacy status. What would happen if we uh, uh, didn't? Well, the adequacy is quite important for international companies and Israeli companies. It allows for data transfers about uh, European citizens to Israel 
the same as uh, being done within the EU. So the adequacy decision is, is important to Israeli companies wanting to give services to Europeans and to Israeli companies who are part of a multinational uh, organization. So I think that we should uh, do the most we can in order to preserve the status. But say the regulator and the lawmakers didn't take care of that. Companies, would companies be able to um, adhere to Uh, voluntarily and work with the European yes sure uh, I I hear the market uh, I hear from the market all the time and from the private sector that they are working in order to be both Israeli privacy regulation compliant and GDPR compliant because they are part of a supply chain of international companies or European companies so I think that uh, that is excellent and I think that at the bottom line the citizen would get uh, better privacy protection all around advocate Lichtenstein you probably have something to say about this yes indeed I think that even uh, further than Limor just said I think that the the Appliance of the GDPR to Israeli companies is much in a wider scope than discussed here before because it further applies, for example, for uh, Israeli uh, startups monitoring uh, European citizens, which is either cookies or uh, beacons or whatever monitoring devices you want to imply. Most of the digital uh, businesses do that. Um, second of all, I've seen that many companies um, inadvertently use data about European uh, citizens or market to Europe through through other uh, manners and um, not all, all the time they know of it and not all the time they are aware of it the um, companies themselves are not yes, aware that they're yes. using European information right uh, a very very significant gap analysis and a survey prior to checking whether the regulation applies to you or not is the best way to proceed and then take the, the survey do it with a professional and make sure that you apply to the GDPR and Because even if it will not apply to you as well, I believe it will be some sort of a, like so, a benchmark. Right, a, a, a standard, some sort of a standard you need to adhere to because if you don't, other competitors will do. So you need to or get up to them or stay behind on the privacy issue. Now we've spoken so much about GDPR. Why don't you tell us what GDPR is? Sure, yes. The GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, is a European evolution of the European privacy laws. which finally gives us, the citizens, if we were living in Europe, some sort of a actual regulation applying to us and not just some benchmark of ideas which we want to apply to. It is actually quite like a law in Europe, which applies to companies who either practice in, in Europe, sell to Europe, monitor behavior in Europe, follow European citizens, or have any establishment in Europe, and the establishment is very wide, widely scoped. So the, the European law uh, says that you cannot transfer data about Europeans from Europe to another country if that country's privacy standards are lower than Europe's. Right. There are, there are many barriers upon transferring information from Europe abroad. And the first hurdle is the adequacy resolution, which has to be applied to. Even if you had those, there are certain uh, issues you have to check with your uh, uh, suppliers or, or other contractors, uh, which has to apply to the GDPR as well. Because if they don't, even if you have an adequacy regulation, then it will not apply uh, to them. So this is the first state. The adequacy is very, very important here. And I hope that uh, our uh, privacy uh, uh, positions will make sure that it applies. GDPR goes into effect in May. In May. Same as the Israeli uh, regulations as well. And the basis of uh, the GDPR is that 
the control of information is transferred from companies to individuals whose information we're talking about. It's their information, their data, and now they can tell the companies what to do with it and what not to. Right. I think that the first thing is not to be surprised because nowadays Facebook, for example, gives its services for free. So it has to make some sort of a way to earn a profit and it does earn a profit. The, the way it does earn a profit is us. If there's another similar uh, uh, network which, uh, let's say, charges $10 per month from us and uh, undertakes to be completely private, then I'm sure it will also make money. It depends on if we want to pay with our money or with our data. Uh, so give us some free uh, advice. What should businesses in Israel do if they want to adhere to the uh, GDPR and work with Europe or European information? Right. So the basic idea is, like Limor said, privacy by design. The first thing is... Think privacy first and make sure you apply to it. All the thing is around it. Um, a, a very extensive survey and a very, very extensive gap analysis has to be made. And person to that, you have to make sure that you apply to the uh, GDPR. I will just mention the, the highlights of it because it goes deeper and deeper than that. Um, you have to make sure that uh, all the privacy uh, options in your service apply to privacy at, as default. If you, if you want uh, the, the users to change it, if you want the clients to change it, they have the right to change it or not. Second of all, you have to make sure that you are aware of their rights and, and the GDPR does extend quite a long uh, list of uh, uh, personal rights. Many of them are new and not heard before. The most uh, interesting ones are the new uh, right to be forgotten, which is explicitly uh, affected by the GDPR. A, a second very interesting one is the right to demand review of the information applied uh, to you every time you want, whenever you want. Which already exists in the Israeli law, interestingly. In the Israeli law, yes, the company is li little, little less than that. And the following right is the right to export that uh, data outside of the company which holds it either to yourself or to another company. Which, which is pretty amazing because if I wanted to leave Facebook, I would have to take the data, they let you download it, but I would have to put it on my computer and it's useless. But under this rule, they might be uh, forced to move it, to give it to another company that runs another social network, which means that I can transfer between companies the way I do with banks and cell phone providers and whatnot. Exactly. And the most important thing about it is that the GDPR goes into very much details about almost all of those rights and talking about this right, the details are which you have, the business has to apply it in a manner which is technologically readable. They can't send you a, a box with papers. Right. Or like say a uh, software used uh, 10 years ago and say, okay, you have the data. It has to be in a reasonable manner which is applicable to other uh, uh services. Now, a very important thing is, which you have to apply yourself as a business, is to make sure that uh, the same as was happening with Facebook and uh, Cambridge, the, the consent is very much informed. You have to give a very uh, specific notice of a lot of details, and it has to be separate and very clear and very precise and very uh, stands upon itself and make sure that it is provable. And the last thing I think that which you have to apply to is the recording, because um, the most important thing about the GDPR for businesses is making sure you can prove you did what you had to do. Because you can do everything you want to do, but if you're not, you will not be able to prove it to the regulator, then you're down in that hole again. So what you're saying is that the GDPR not only puts new rules to businesses, it also tells us, the citizens, the users, 
you have to take care of your information, your data. You have to look at what you're signing and what you're approving. And you're not protected if you allow the company to do something. And it did. Exactly. GDPR allows a very a lot of uh, exceptions using explicit consent and other consents. But... Even today, users have to agree, and most users do click I agree, but no one reads that. And, and the GDPR makes it a little bit harder for us to ignore that. It has to give us more details. We have to look into it and make sure that we agree with that or not. Limo, when will we see that in Israel? Well, um, part of it is already in existence. And we have also in Israel a mechanism where we as the Privacy Protection Authority can issue guidelines. And we have done so in the past and will continue to do so in the future. For example, uh, we've issued a guideline stating that when companies receive a uh, request of, of uh, access to information by individual, they need to provide the, the data that was stored in any manner. You need to send the information digitally to the to the individual since uh, uh, having a, a person uh, burdened with coming to some sort of office wherever at, at a time which is convenient to the organization is not, in our opinion, a correct way to, to give the right of access. Does your guidance compel the companies to To do as you said is it like a, a regulation a rule a law or is it just something that if I sue the company I can I can refer to it okay so our guidelines are not uh, law or regulation but they do state the way that we see uh, companies required to to uh, implement the laws so if we would come to enforce uh, at, at a certain company and find that our guidelines were not adhered to then that would be a cause f- perhaps for fines or for other sanctions so uh, that's the the framework uh, Uh, we feel that it's important to deliver our policy to, to controllers, to data controllers in a way that they can comply with the law before we come and enforce it with sanctions. So a guideline is a, is a good practice uh, for a company to use in order to avoid fines, to avoid enforcement. So in a sense, it's a roadmap with uh, very clear traffic lights. One more thing about what Limo just said that the guidelines in Israel both uh, as in Europe is something which companies have to take into consideration because it is some sort of a way for even if it's not binding as a law, it's some sort of a way for the courts to to comprehend how the situation has to unfold and how the situation has to be handled in those matter and the same as in the GDPR there are sort of a, a binding corporate rules which have to apply and if you apply them it gives you some sort of protection same here if you apply the privacy authority guidelines then it will make it much more easier for you to prove that you were on the right side of the issue exactly and it's something that uh, is very uh, um, I think informative and helpful uh, when you have enforcement powers like we do which are criminal investigation powers and administrative investigation powers and the right to impose fines fines and um, uh, give out decisions that may create class actions against data controllers, we feel that it's our obligation to also give the roadmap how to avoid these uh, sanctions. Professor Liggett, what are the challenges of uh, keeping our privacy in the digital age from your professional point of view? So the current model of how our personal data is being collected and used is inherently very unfriendly to privacy and security. Thinking about our online data in particular, the current model is that private companies have nearly unrestricted ability to gather information about our behavior, and then they own the data and can do with it whatever they like. They can combine it with whatever other information about us they can get their hands on, 
and they can use it to build detailed profiles of each and every one of us. In a very real sense, these companies, about which we know very little, know us better than our own mothers or our own spouses. I'm reminded of uh, my visit to uh, Facebook and Google headquarters, and they wouldn't uh, let us take pictures uh, inside them. And it was weird to me because you have all my pictures, you have all my information, but I'm not even allowed to take a picture of an office. That's, uh, <laughs> that's really two-faced. There's something very, very asymmetric about this relationship. And then these companies, they're free to make a profit off of what they've learned about us without any obligation to share their profits with us. So not only our pri is our privacy breached, we don't even get paid. Well, we get paid with uh, free services, as they say, like when you don't pay for the service, you're the currency uh, or you're the product. Uh, our information, our uh, privacy is that uh, commodity. Yeah, that's right. And... In my mind, under this model, there's really very little hope for privacy because individuals have very little control of who gathers and holds information about them. And also, they don't always know or um, care to take um, uh, steps into uh, preserving their privacy because, like, I, I don't want to um, worry about encryption and two-factor authentication. I just want to use my email and then I pay the price. Yes, we're really, as users, we're not given very meaningful choices in today's world. And then once our data is out there, we're really vulnerable to security breaches, such as hackers breaking in. And then even when it's not hacking, when information's being made intentionally public, this is often done without any formal privacy guarantees, like in the AOL example. And so essentially, the folks who are releasing the data are eyeballing it and crossing their fingers, hoping an attacker won't find a way to back out private information from the release. But the thing is, attackers are smart. They have a lot of resources, a lot of outside data to match against any given release of information, and a lot of incentive to succeed. So it's crazy to think we can anticipate what attackers will have or do, let alone that we could anticipate their actions a few years down the road when they'll be even more powerful. So how do you overcome those obstacles and uh, plan long-term privacy? In my opinion, there are two main issues we need to address. First, we need to shift the model of how data are collected and stored and who has rights to them. We need to get away from a model where the Googles and Facebooks of the world suck up as much data as they like and give us very little in return. The data should stay with the individual or be curated somehow by a separate entity that the individual designates. And the rules that the individual sets should govern how that data is used. Computers should be negotiating on our behalf to ensure that we're all fairly compensated for the use of our information. Now, this is a big challenge and one that needs a lot more attention and resources than it's getting. And the second issue is, whenever a decision is being made based on personal data, for example, when a company uses your past behavior to decide what advertisements to show someone else, which is happening right now as we speak, or a version of personal data is being released, for example, when companies share your information with their partners, the entity making that decision or making that release should have an obligation to do so with mathematically meaningful privacy guarantees. No more crossing our fingers. As I said, we mostly have the technology for this, so the major obstacle is deployment and getting law and regulation in line with this goal. Again, not a trivial issue, but I think it's one we can and must address. Uh, is it uh, an issue of money? It's really, it's a lot of things all at once. And one of the, the issues is actually that the people doing the math aren't very good at getting their ideas out into the real world. But is it also uh, like Facebook would like to use your information or share it in a way that's uh, more uh, valuable to its clients 
and using your methods would actually um, diminish their um, their um, effectiveness or or uh, or value in some cases yes some of what I'm advocating for really is moving both money and power back to the individuals and away from the corporations are you optimistic I think you have to be an optimist to work in privacy but there's a lot left to be done as I said and in today's world we are all user number four four one seven seven four nine. And if this hasn't convinced you, please do send me your email credentials. I would love to use them. Thanks to all our guests, Professor Katrina Liggett. Thank you. Limor Schmerling Magazane. Thank you. It was my pleasure to be here. And you all missed today. Thank you, Ido. I'm Ido Kainan. And see you in cyberspace. This was Lex Kibernetica. Lex Kibernetica. More episodes are available at the Hebrew University Cybersecurity Research Center site at csrcl.huji.ac.il.